Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 111, Revelation, a thousand year reign. And today on the podcast, I want to talk about Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, which is arguably the most discussed passage in the entire book of Revelation. In fact, this passage is the reason why there is so much disagreement about the book of Revelation. It is this passage that is where all of the different theological camps, I guess, if you will, or perspectives or lenses through which people choose to read the book, that's where all of this discussion comes from. And so, hey, you've picked a good episode, one where we're going to try to tackle a lots of different perspectives. But I, I just want to begin the episode by letting you know I'm aware of the fact that there are many, many people who have studied the Bible for all their lives and simply come to different conclusions than me. So I am not going to try to um, convince you that other perspectives are wrong. I'm going to briefly um, clue you in into what some of those perspectives are and then to give you the reasons why I believe the way I do, which is the best I can do. That's really the best any of us can do. So I hope that this episode is helpful for you. I know it'll be encouraging and um, hopefully we'll be able to walk through the passage together. So let's just jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, the six verses that I just read is, as I shared in the introduction, where a lot of the discussion centers when people have interpretive grids for thinking and reading the book of Revelation. It stems primarily around whether or not this thousand years that is repeatedly described in these six verses is a literal 1,000 years or if it is metaphorical or figurative in some way. In fact, of all the positions that are out there, there are things called like premillennial or premillennial dispensationalism or postmillennial or amillennial. And every one of these interpretive grids focuses in on the 1,000 years. It's bothered me, though, for a number of years to realize that why would a discussion about the best interpretive grid for Revelation center 
on the the interpretation or the meaning, if you will, of a passage that appears in the 20th chapter of the book. Uh, Growing up, I had heard lots of things about the millennium, but it's almost as if people start with their idea of what this millennial reign is going to be, and then they work backwards. And I don't really think that's a helpful way to read Revelation, because for one, the book of Revelation has already given us lots of clues along the way that are coming to their conclusion or their culmination, if you will, in this particular passage. But if you start with this passage and decide what it has to mean based upon your interpretive grid, then you will no doubt go back and reread all the rest of the passages and you automatically assume that that must be what what they actually mean. And so I um I do realize with a book like Revelation, there's lots of room for wiggle. And so I again I as I shared in the introduction, I'm not here to convince you that every other view is wrong. I just feel like the best I can do is present to you the reasons why I hold to what I do and allow you to make your own judgment. But I would like to read a brief poem for you. It's called Introduction to Poetry by Billy Collins, and I find this to be really helpful particularly as it comes to discussing a passage like Revelation 20. Here's what it says. I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore but all they want to do is to tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. Now, I think that that poem is beautiful, and I'm sure you picked up on the imagery. Billy Collins is saying, I'm inviting people to take a poem and look at it. Wave at the author. Dive into the poem like you're a mouse and work your way out. And, and engage it. Let it engage your imagination and swallow you whole. And if, if you've read any good poetry, you know that poetry has a way of doing something to you. Not, not necessarily something that you could even describe, but it, it, it touches nerves. It, it, it conjures imagination. It, it um, draws in your emotions or maybe draws them out would be a better way to look at it. But he says at the end that all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. And I have noticed a tendency on the part of lots of readers of the Bible to treat Revelation in specific in this way. They just want to beat it with a hose to torture a confession out of it and for somebody to stand up and say, this is what it really means. Now, it isn't as if we aren't trying to decide what something really means, but rather I want to ask before we get into the specifics of the thousand years, I want to ask what purpose and function would Revelation 20 serve in coming and sort of beginning to tie up the the loose ends of the book? And one of the biggest loose ends, it takes us all the way back to chapter 6. And that is we have some souls under the altar. In fact, Revelation 20 references these souls, those who had been beheaded for the word of God and for his testimony. But it also ties in people who have not taken the mark of the beast, have not taken his name, have not um, you know, put something on their foreheads or on their hands. Revelation 20 is bringing a lot of themes to the surface 
that we haven't looked at for several chapters. And so it's not enough to dive right in and just say, well, what does this thousand years look like? Is it literal? Is it figurative? What's going on? Rather, it's pulling together a lot of themes that have already been addressed in the book of Revelation. And so for us, I want us to realize that John may very well still, as he's been doing all through the book, be trying to imaginatively grip us by painting a picture. In fact, he does that. He, he makes a comparison here between the defeat and the death of Satan himself and his defeat and demise with the coming to life of those that, 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 the, that Satan himself had, had beheaded. So you've got a, a pure contrast here. You've got a binding of Satan in the first half, and then you have these others who come to life in the second half. This is the final, um, the, the final state, but it is all the promises that were made to those who were overcomers um, that in the end they would receive vindication. It's it's um, a voice from heaven giving the martyrs a white robe in Revelation chapter six and told to rest just a little longer until the number of their fellow servants were to be killed just as they had been. So what we're now seeing is this bringing back to life of those who had suffered death, the one who thought he was promoting life is now facing death. So imaginatively, there's a hinge here. There's a shift going on. And John wants us to imaginatively get caught up in this. And so I want to read a couple paragraphs by Richard Baucom because I think he's really helpful in having us see this contrast here between what the beast did and what his fate is and what happened to the martyrs and now what their fate is and how it's a beautiful reversal. Um, He pulls in lots of references to Daniel 7, which I think is very um, accurate. I'm glad he does that. And we we may talk about that here towards the end of our episode. Um, But this is what Richard Baucom has to say in his book, The Theology of the Book of Revelation. Daniel 7 concerns the destruction of the beast that has persecuted the people of God and the transference of his kingdom to the Son of Man and his people. It is this which Revelation depicts in chapter 19, 11 to 21, the destruction of the beast, and chapter 24 to 6, the transference of the kingdom to the saints. What is said about the martyrs in 24 through 6 is strictly limited to what contrasts with the fate of the beast. He has been thrown into the lake of fire from chapter 19, which is the second death, chapter 20, verse 14. But they come to life and the second death has no power over them. The kingdom has been taken from him and is given to them. Now that the destroyers of the earth have been destroyed, the earth is given to Christ's people to rule with him. Life and rule The two issues on which the contest between the martyrs and the beast had focused are the sole themes of chapter 20, 4 to 6, and they're merely asserted without elaboration. This shows that the theological point of the millennium is solely to demonstrate the triumph of the martyrs, that those whom the beast put to death are those who will truly live, eschatologically, and that those who contested his right to rule and suffered for it are those who will in the end rule as universally as he, and for much longer, a thousand years. 
There is no more need to take the millennium literally than to suppose that the sequence of judgments, the seal openings, the trumpets, the bulls, are literal predictions. John no doubt expected there to be judgments, but his description of them are imaginative schemes designed to depict the meaning of the judgments. John expected the martyrs to be vindicated, but the millennium depicts the meaning rather than predicting the manner of their vindication. Now, to my mind, and again, this is just to my mind, that answers this dilemma beautifully. John is depicting the meaning rather than the manner of the martyr's vindication. When you dip down into the details and you grab a hose and start beating Revelation 20, 1 to 6 to find out what it really means, you miss the meaning. You think you're grabbing the meaning, but it's looking at the meaning, not the manner. He's not here describing for us an order to, to the way things work. And I think it's helpful um, because we've talked about in Revelation, or I'm sorry, in episode 96, where I talked about what I titled The End from Seven Perspectives. You, you might go back and listen to that episode again, but the point of that episode was noticing these repeating patterns and recurring themes that only intensify as time goes on throughout the book. But you very easily could read the book of Revelation noticing these are seven different perspectives given. Chapters 1 to 3 forms a unit, 4 to 7 forms a unit in heaven, 8 through 11 forms some of the judgments, 12 to 14 is kind of a break in the action where we get this Christian um, story retold. Chapters 15 to 16 deal with the bulls, 17 to 19 deals with the judgment of the false prophet and um, the beast. And then chapters 20 to 22 deal with sort of like what we would kind of see as this culmination point. And the, the, the reason why I'm bringing that up to you now is because we just wrapped up chapter 19 and now we're into chapter 20. But according to the way some of these perspectives work, chapter 20 in a very real way is, is now repeating some things that we've already seen in the book. And one of the reasons why I think that's the case is because if we focus in too much on the details, right, if we got into verse 3 of chapter 20, we were told that when Satan is bound for a thousand years, he's going to be thrown into this pit and he will not deceive the nations any longer. Well, if you go back just several verses to Revelation 19, um, here, let me, let me read for you just a brief section. Um, in Revelation 19, verse um, 18, he says, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Um, and then if you skip down to the end, the very last thing on verse 21, it says the rest um, who were, were not already thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on, a, on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, why would I bring that up to you? I would bring that up to you because if we thought Revelation was chronological, then a logical question would be, who are these nations who are now no longer deceived 
while the while Satan is bound. Because according to Revelation 19, all of those people who were not followers of the of the rider on the white horse, were not followers of Jesus, have been destroyed. So then who are these people? And I'm not going into the details. Um, I frankly don't remember lots of them, but but I do vaguely have memories in the past of very strange interpretations that begin to ensue based on people trying their best to figure out who these people are. And, oh, there's going to be a rebellion. Jesus is going to reign for all this time, but at the end, there's going to be a rebellion. And the people that, you know, sin is still going to be creeping in. And then at the end, he's going to have to come in and destroy it one more time. And I, it gets so cumbersome to me, to, to my mind, to imagine a, a time and a place where Jesus is literally reigning and ruling with his people, and yet sin is going to also be present. See, I feel like when you literalize things and you miss the meaning and you search just for the manner in which these events will unfold, it forces you. It absolutely requires you to come up with all sorts of alternative ways of explaining this passage. Instead, I think what John wants us to do is to appreciate the value that he is offering to those who were suffering. So take, for example, in Revelation chapter 2 to the church in Smyrna, they were suffering intense persecution. And, and John tells them that you will suffer tribulation for 10 days. You will be thrown into prison for 10 days. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, <clears throat> we know all through the book of Revelation that multiples of seven are important. Um, the number seven is important. Multiples of seven are important. Um, multiples of 10, multiples of 12. We've looked at the 144,000. We've not interpreted that literally. And I think we have good reason in the book of Revelation for choosing not to interpret that literally. We've looked at, um, you know, there are seven churches, there's seven horns, 10 heads. You know, we, we get all of these, these numbers and all throughout the book of Revelation, I've very comfortably settled into um, metaphorical uses of those numbers um, because I think the book of Revelation invites that for us. But when you look at what happens to those who suffer, and John tells the, church, the Christians in Smyrna that they will be thrown into jail for 10 days, there, this time of testing, right, is which is clearly what is happening to this church in Smyrna. If you go back, and I mentioned this in that episode, but if you go back to Daniel chapter 1, when Daniel and his friends were brought into the king's court and the food was set before Daniel and his, his friends, that they were not permitted to eat under the law of the Lord, they requested to not be fed that food, instead to eat only vegetables. And in Daniel 1, there was a, a, a period of time given, a time of testing to see whether or not they would be able to sustain good health and wise counsel in the Babylonian courts, eating only vegetables. And at the end of the 10 days, they were checked out and they were healthy enough and, and they were allowed to continue abiding by the law of their Lord, not the laws of Babylon. The, the, the same thing is happening in Revelation it's not a literal number. Like we need to think through, well, that's a week and a half. And well, the last time I did something for a week and a half, you know, I got, when I gave up sugar, I went through some headaches. No, that that's not what, what John's getting at. He's setting up this idea of a test, right? A, of a temptation. And this is why Paul throughout the New Testament will oftentimes speak like he does in Romans 8, 
where he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So what Paul is, was doing there is he's talking about his life. Like Paul's whole life was one of suffering and he's ex- encouraging the Roman Christians to realize that this kind of suffering is, is nothing compares with the glory that you're going to be revealed. So I think John's making a comparison and I think Bauckham picks up on this. In fact, this is why I think John's making the comparison because I think Bauckham's interpretation makes a lot of sense. If you compare the struggle for 10 days being in trial, in prison, the, the church in Smyrna, compared to 1,000 years where Satan is going to be tossed himself in a prison and you all who were put to death will come to life and freely reign with Jesus. That, in my mind, is exactly what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. Who would compare 10 days to 1,000 years? But understand, they're both multiples of 10. I mean, you've got, like, that, 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 that's what, what John is doing is masterful here. And I think it would help us to realize that that's also what he's describing. Now, if I were to say to you, okay, so this, this scene is now contrasting the fate of the serpent. Listen to some of the language that's being used. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Okay. He bound him for a thousand years. So that he won't deceive the nations any longer, but he at the end he'll be released for a short time. Okay, you could go all the way back to Revelation chapter 12, which did form the beginning of the fourth perspective in the book of Revelation. It's the fourth section that kind of stands by itself. It gives us this heavenly picture. It describes realities of the beast and other things that have already been referenced in the book, but it gives us a thorough explanation of who and what they are and why they matter. But in Revelation 12, 9 to 12, listen to what is described. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now we looked at this when we talked about Revelation chapter 12. We talked about the Christian story retold and we, we talked about um, what what this means that the enemy himself has been thrown down, he has been defeated. This is the Christian story. But Revelation 12, 9 is the only other place in the book where we're given this multiple referred to description of Satan. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. And here in chapter 20, verse 2, he seized the dragon, 
that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Now, it's almost repeated verbatim. Now, if you know that these sections in Revelation, these perspectives are overlapping, they oftentimes are describing the same events. John is writing to the churches in the first few chapters. In chapters 4 through 7, he's describing those same realities, but from a heavenly perspective. So Revelation is not interested in chronology. It's never been interested in chronology. What it's interested in is calling the people of God to continually faithfully witness and testify to the truth of who Jesus is, to be reminded of the position that they've been given in Christ and the manner and the the way in which Jesus has brought that reality about. Therefore, as his followers, we realize that our victory our vindication, and our faithfulness will match his victory, his vindication, and his faithfulness in the way it was brought about. And this is why John ties in in Revelation 12 that they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. John again is now talking about martyrs. These victors That could be you, that could be me, that could be those on the other side of the world who actually have died as a result of their faithful witness. John is now reminding us of the power that they have over the enemy. And I find out that it's fascinating because he says, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And we looked at this again, and this is like a wounded animal. Um, The devil has been kicked out of heaven. He has been kicked down to the earth. He knows that he is a defeated foe, and he is a very dangerous um, person to mess with because he knows he's been defeated. But this is the same kind of language that's being used to describe what will happen to him in Revelation chapter 20. And I know revelation is imaginative. It is metaphorical. It is pictorial. It's not just stating realities that are happening. It's inviting readers to be encouraged by the truths that are communicated by the imaginative ideas. And so I do see this as having both a futuristic and a present reality. And you might say, well, there's no way that Satan is bound now. I mean, nobody would believe that. And yet, if you read the Gospels, this is precisely what the Gospels tell us. We may need to spend some time in a future podcast looking at these in more detail, but let me read for you just three. Matthew 12, 29, Jesus says, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Jesus speaks about his activity his freeing people from the clutches of Satan's grasp as him binding the strong man. That's exactly what's being described in Revelation chapter 20. Or how about Luke chapter 10, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples after he sends them out two by two, and they return and report to Jesus some of the things that they had done. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Well, now again, that sounds an awful lot like what we read in Revelation 12, and that also sounds a lot like what we read in Revelation chapter 20. 
Or how about this one from John chapter 12? Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So here's Jesus describing now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And so these events have already been set in motion. These events have already begun by the person of Jesus, and he will complete the process that he began on the final day, which is, again, what Revelation 20 is, is, is drawing us into, you know, be encouraged by. But here's what John is getting at, ultimately. John wants us to see this shift taking place, this defeat of the beast and the one who has created havoc for the people of God. And then it's the transference of this kingdom to the saints. That's what's being described in Revelation 20 verses 4 to 6. It's they are coming to life now and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. This is a picture of what he is ultimately come to do. And so I'll tip my hand for you when I read Revelation 12 and I read the nature of the, the, the attack that Satan gives, being a defeated foe, knowing he has lost his place because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have entered into a time period that I think Revelation has no problem speaking about um, as a certain amount of years, a certain amount of days, a certain amount of time. We read, you know, times, time, and half a time or you know, 42 months or 1,260 days, this time of testing or trial or, or period of time where we're, you know, not necessarily physically protected, but spiritually protected. And Revelation uses these terms all the time. So I think there's a significant amount of overlap between what we read in chapter 20 and what we read in chapter 12. There are too many similarities to me to not take them somewhat seriously. In fact, at the end of verse 3 in Revelation 20, John says, after this, he must be released for a little while. Well, that's no different than what we read in chapter 12, verse 12, where he says he's come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Well, it's just two different ways of, of describing that reality. So again, I don't have all the answers for you, but here's one thing that I do have. I believe I have the same hope that John wanted to convey to his readers. And that's the hope that Paul picks up on in Romans. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed. There is life and there is rule. Two of the biggest themes we've looked at throughout this whole podcast, those are both being given to those who suffered at the hands of the beast ultimately at the hands of this dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. John wants them to know that their vindication will happen and it will be so much richer and so much more glorious than what little things they lost along the way in order to main maintain faithfulness to Jesus. I think Jesus picked up that same theme he picked up the theme that says it was worth it for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the father. 
And so John is describing for us what I think Daniel was looking forward to in Daniel chapter 7. Let me read for you the last several verses of that chapter. Here's what Daniel 7 says, starting in verse 25. He shall speak words. This is talking about um, the beast, this ten horns, and out of his kingdom, uh, ten, ten kings shall arise. He says, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And here's the verse I want you to hear. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now in episode 92, Revelation, the mark of the lamb, we talked about this really powerful interchange going on between the saints of the kingdom of king of the most high and the one himself him his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and his all dominions shall serve and obey him i i would encourage you to go back and to listen to that episode because it was really helpful for me when i connected the fact that jesus and his people are spoken about so closely and so intimately that to speak about him is to speak about them. And to speak about them is to speak about him. And so reigning with Christ, that is us. We have been raised with Christ. We have been united with Christ. We have been made new with Christ um, all of these symbols of our union with Christ, this is exactly what John is describing. And he is elevating the position of the very people throughout the book of Revelation whose actual life experiences have led them or led others around them to potentially be discouraged that nothing good is going to come from their faithful witness. Revelation 20 is a powerful antidote to that belief that yes, something good will come. Your vindication will come. You can count on it in direct contrast to the beastly rule of the dragon who persuaded everyone who followed him to believe that the life and the rule that they adopted would never end. Christians reject that outright and here we have good reason for doing so. We know that the end is a short way away. We know that the dragon can only deceive for just a little while, but his, his um, defeat will be swift. It has already been dealt the decisive death blow. Jesus' presence and then his death and his resurrection have already dealt the enemy the final death blow. Jesus is now waiting for his people to enter in and his word to us is encouraging we say when are you going to judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth like the martyrs cry out from under the altar and what does he tell them just rest a little longer here's a white robe i want you to wait until the number of the rest of your brothers who are to be killed in the same way as you had been is brought to completion 
That's a very different word than what many of us reach for, isn't it? Many of us are looking for the right avenues and the right paths to bring about that judgment ourselves, which is why Paul has to later remind the Roman Christians, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. The Lord is the, alone is the one who in true judgment is able to parse out these situations properly. That's not left to us. What's left to us is to know that our faithful witness to Jesus will be eventually met with the same vindication that Jesus himself received. Three days for Jesus in the tomb might be a lot longer for us, but it's, it's going to come about no matter what. And so that's really all the time I have for this week's episode. Um, as I keep saying, we're nearing our end, nearing the end of the book of Revelation. I'm excited for the last several chapters. There are some really powerful things to be found there, encouraging things for you and for me both. Um, if you have questions, which you very well may, um, I'd love for you to reach out to me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Got a great question this past week and I'm working through uh, coming up with an answer to and maybe even have a podcast about it sometime in the future. Um, it's a very thoughtful question. And <clears throat> again, I love to, to listen to the things that you're processing and how you're working your way through it. But my encouragement to you as we leave is that no matter what is happening now, no matter what difficulties you are experiencing now, for John to paint such a beautiful picture of life and rule that is properly restored to those who have literally lost their lives, then there is no suffering at this present time that cannot also find our hope in the same Jesus who will vindicate us and will completely destroy um, and, and end the life and the rule and the reign of those who were the destroyers of the earth. I find a lot of hope there. Because no matter what difficulties are going on, Jesus is the one who is still reigning and will invite us in to share and experience that reign with him. So thank you so much for those of you that have left a rating or review for the podcast. If you haven't yet done so and have found even one or two of these episodes helpful, would you leave me a rating or review on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these on? Um, you can find me on Facebook as well. We're on Instagram at the Unbinding the Bible podcast. And I'm really thankful for each of you. Hope you have a fantastic week. And I will talk to you next time.